All right, this is Congress Two Beers In. I'm Josh Huter, the Senior Fellow of the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. I'm with my colleagues Matt Glassman and Mark Harkins. Good afternoon. We have a special guest here today, Jonathan Bernstein at Bloomberg Opinion. Hello. Uh, blogs about all things political science. Uh, and we're going to talk to you about a lot of different stuff uh, as soon as Matt stops laughing um, about the intro. But uh, we've got a lot of things that have happened the last couple of weeks. Uh, election results seem to be pouring in still. Um, so what's the big takeaway from these, this major, these midterms? The Democrats won. <laughs> you want a big takeaway? That's why it was a very good year for the Democrats. Well, but they won in the House, but not so much in the Senate, right? Well, they won in the Senate compared to, you know, whatever par was. They, they beat par. Actually, I, I don't think that's. I, I would. I might okay. disagree with that a little right. bit because it's. Well, it's really. Un, it's really. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> no. Uh, the last time that like an incumbent from the out party lost was, um, the guy whose name I'm blanking on right now. Um, why am I forgetting Georgia? Oh, uh, yeah, the veteran. Yes. Yes. Um, Max Cleland. Thank Max you, Cleland. Max Cleland. Uh, and before Special that, guest it, you have to go back another two decades before we can find another incumbent from the out party, the party opposite the president, that loses a Senate race. Um, they lost three, and, and basically four. Four have been called now. Uh, Rick Scott from Florida is going to be the next senator there, unseating Bill Nelson. Uh, Ms. McCaskill is, was Holly. unseated by Josh Hawley. Joe Donnelly was unseated by Mike, Mike Braun. Braun. And, and, then, and Heidi Heitkamp was unseated by Kevin Kramer. Kevin Kramer. So we have four incumbents losing seats. That, that strikes me as unusual in that regard. Now, the map was insane, right? It was absolutely bonkers. You had 10, uh, 10 states that went for Donald Trump defending Democratic seats in the Senate. So it's not terribly inconsistent with past history necessarily just because the map was so thoroughly Republican heavy, right? Or public, Republican right. favorable. Right, because this Senate class, their last two elections right. were Barack Obama re-election right. and the Democratic wave 2006. of 2006. Right. So, right. so that's so you put why... A lot of marginal I, I see this Here's, as totally yeah, functional map, though. Right. I, mean, this, I don't... I don't the president can claim what he wants and Republicans can claim what they want, but what would happen in sort of a normal year where there's no wave and the pool is kind of like at its natural state is that the Republicans would have done much better with this map. Yes. Right? And so it's not even against expectations going into 2018. It's just looking at this map two years ago, you would have said, wow, Republicans might gain four or five or six Senate seats here. Now, if Hillary Clinton were the president, I would absolutely expect that. And yeah. maybe you're looking at like a landslide election in the Senate. Right. But the thing is, this is the luckiest Senate class in a long, long time. For Democrats. For Democrats, yeah. right? You had a midterm election in 2006 where they rode in and all of a sudden John Tester's taking Montana and these the, everybody, all the incumbents are holding and they're winning tons of seats. And then you get the wave election in 2012, not a wave election, but a favorable Democratic year in 2012 with Barack Obama. And then again, you have another favorable electoral environment coming in 2016, but they lose. And that strikes me as that strikes me as interesting. So two of these people who lost in 2018, I would claim, should have lost in 2012, except for the caliber of the candidate against them, right? McCaskill should never have mm. won. Um, Donnelly should never have won in Indiana. Certainly Donnelly, yeah. Right. I mean, that, that's a function of the Republican yeah. primaries kind of shooting themselves in the foot. If you look right. back over the last 10 years, there's a whole slew of seats Republicans should have. Republicans could easily have 56 or 57 senators right now going into this election, given the number of times in the post-2008 era where they nominated people in primaries who took out absolutely lock-solid people. Right, and you know Dick Luger being kind of like the prime example of that someone who's right. never going to lose that election in Indiana. 
um, losing to Murdoch in the primary. Now, Indiana strikes me as an interesting case to look at if you're talking about candidate quality and whether or not uh, there was a really, really good challenger up against some of these incumbents. Uh, I don't know a ton about Mike Braun. He was an outsider. He unseated two Republican establishment, or not really establishment, he beat out two Republican House Republicans in the primary. I don't know what kind of a candidate he was in the Indiana race because I wasn't watching it too closely, but it didn't strike me like he was this some sort of amazing, outstanding candidate that was had an obvious run against an incumbent Democrat. But it's also the case that Donnelly didn't really come in with a, a record of accomplishment. Right. It, it really you know, said anything to him. Now, I, that's not quite true of the other couple. Um, it is true of Nelson. Does Nelson true has done Nelson. very, very little to brag about <laughs> for the last NASA, however many years. There's lots um, of NASA He stuff. went to space. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did you know he's been in space? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, while Heidi Hadkamp had never been in space, she was a pretty good senator, I think. And uh, McCaskill was a, was a very, pretty good senator, I think. So, so those were a little bit of a different category. But, I mean, the thing about judging the, the overall election is the bottom line, one way that I wound up writing about it is, look, if you look at how many seats Democrats won in this cycle yep. versus how many seats Republicans won in the cycle. Democrats won way more seats in the Senate. It's just that they didn't win all of the seats. Yep. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's much to be gained from fighting about whether it was a wave or not. Right. Right. I think even with Trump at 42 or so percent, I think a year ago Democrats would have taken a minus two. That's, so, that's right. Right. I think I, there's no question in my mind that it was a wave, at least in the House side for sure. Right now, they they did pick up some seats in Nevada and Arizona. Right, the last Senate time seats. Right, Senate, Senate seats, mm-hmm. Democrats. Last time Democrats had a Senate seat in Arizona was 1988. Um, so that's significant as well. It seems the map is shifting a little bit around the new dynamics between the parties. Um, but uh, can, can we mention the Keating Five here, or is not, is not <laughs> drop a mention of Keating Five? I like to mention Keating Five. The history lesson. It's usually Harkins History yeah, Corner, but that's okay. We'll let Jonathan go in. <laughs> well, as a proud Arizonan, where both of my senators were involved in Keating Five. <laughs> I, so I think anyway. underrated is the shift in Arizona uh, in the electorate. Overrated, I think, is the shift in Texas. Um, I don't know if you disagree with that, John. Jonathan, but the, the amount of attention paid to O'Rourke in an election that I think six months ago, I think sitting around this office, we said, well, this looks like the kind of thing where O'Rourke's going to show well and lose by four points and get a lot of national attention that maybe helps his career, but isn't necessarily indicative of uh, where Texas is headed. Thoughts? Um, you know, he, he lost by something like three points eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is... And, and the Democrats picked up two seats um, in Congress. They came close in my home, di- or my district where I live in, in Texas 21. Um, cops were almost knocked off Chip Roy, who's now going to be the most obnoxious man in the House from what I read in the papers. I don't know. Um, that, there's a lot of people vying for that prize. It's competition. But, but he's been groomed by, by um, Ted Cruz, so uh, well, you know, he's well, well positioned. Um, and, uh, you know, there were just a, a bunch of competitive ones. And then, I know this is kind of, but if we look at, you know, state legislature, Democrats picked up something like 12 seats in the in the lower chamber. Um, Democrats came within 10, uh, uh, 10 points of, or to five points of most of the down ballot statewide ones, which you would think would sort of be indicative of, of party strength. Um, it was it was an interesting. My, my, my big gripe, the Democrats should have about Texas, which I'm sorry I'm off point, but uh, it turns out that um, the former mayor of San Antonio, where I live, uh, who's running for president, 
Um, <laughs> One of the 49. Um, <laughs> Mayor Castro. John Delaney's a um, mayor. <laughs> 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 um, you know, if Castro had run for governor and kept that race a little closer, um, it's possible that a couple more House seats would have mm-hmm. turned. It's possible the Senate seat could have turned. Um, and it's an interesting, you know, going in, it seemed to make no sense for him to, to be a sacrificial lamb. He also probably would have won if he had run for attorney general. Um, we're proud that we have an attorney general who's been under indictment during his entire term. <laughs> and, He's got the right skill set, I And guess. he won by five points as a Republican in Texas against a non-entity who didn't run a very visible campaign anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, that's... Yeah, no, that's a good case for why maybe it was a bigger thing in Texas. I still say that bigger... I mean, uh, you know, waiver now for the Democrats, one story coming out of this is Ohio's sort of shift away from the Democrats Mm -hmm. to the point where it doesn't particularly look like it's in the swing state model of the 2020 election or elections going forward. And that's not to say that there aren't other states that are becoming competitive. Pennsylvania looks like it's shifted back towards Democrats. Virginia looks like it's going to lose its status as a purple state in any sense and is now just blue. And of course, Arizona coming into play Mm -hmm. and and Georgia too. But uh, Ohio is surprising to me because other Rust Belt states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania had sort of, you might call them reversions to the mean or outright kind of rejections of Trumpism that were very apparent, but Ohio didn't. And I don't have a good enough sense of why that is. And uh, I'm happy to be enlightened or I'd be happy to have people throw their hands up in the air and say, why is Ohio red now? You got me. I don't have any particularly good answer. I would normally say like, oh, well, there's some Appalachian country in there where you have like that old school um, cultural Appalachian background to to the state. Um, but then you look at Pennsylvania and, and you can't really necessarily explain it through that either. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's a bit of an aberration. Maybe there's something unique to the economy in Ohio, but it's certainly shifting away. Uh, Rob Portman won his, uh, his election in 2016 in a favorable electoral environment as a Republican by 20 plus points. Sherrod Brown, an incumbent, won his seat in a favorable Democratic year by three. Right, so it was not necessarily the kind of support that you would see as an incumbent. And I don't find it terribly surprising that he's now weighing options for president, given the fact that he's seen his races get tighter and tighter and tighter. For whatever reason, I think Trump's message is playing better in Ohio um, than it is in these other Rust Belt states. And I can't tell you exactly the reason. Maybe there's a little bit more manufacturing that's there. Maybe you know you think about Cleveland. Um, and where it is, an old Pittsburgh guy, I think about Cleveland certain ways. Um, but, but, and then you've got the kind of the Great Lakes. But it's, it's, it is different than Illinois. It is different than Wisconsin. It is different than Michigan. Michigan's probably the closest to it. Maybe it's proximity to the East Coast makes a difference too, that the, the what's coming from D.C. gets there better. It's in the same time zone. I mean, I know these are weird things to think about. <laughs> right. We're grasping at straws. Yeah, I mean, it's the God. Time zones? But yeah. seriously, I mean, Michigan It looks like is, a glove. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's why. But I, I think that closeness may make a difference. And it's just, it does have that hard scrabble side to it, which maybe is part of that Appalachia thing you're talking about, which you don't have in Michigan to quite the same degree. Right. And there, there was some evidence of that in 2016 as well, where like Trump really, really, really solidified a lot of the Appalachian states in some some really uh, big ways. Like Western Pennsylvania was very very much Trump country, right? West Virginia went extremely yeah. extremely Trump heavy. Pennsylvania went Trump in a way that Democrats could not have. Expected. Who's got the best personal brand in the country? Joe Manchin. <laughs> yes, must. Yes, he overcame the biggest. Not bad, right? 
Yeah. I, like, I mean, Testers isn't bad, but... Man, no, is incredible. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, have, there was this interview that I don't know many people know of, but it was a, it was done by, um, I think it was Politico. They, they had an interview with him. It was like behind the scenes or some weird spinoff that they had. But it was just an interviewer talking to Joe Manchin. And you're just blown away by how West Virginia this dude is, right? <laughs> every, every single answer to every single question is put in the context of that constituency. And it's like, you know, small town, like my, I worked in my grandfather's like convenience store and he taught me a lot of lessons and it was about debt and hard work. And it's just, it was just, wow. You're blown away by the personal style of this man in this very, very, very extremely Trump district, um, Trump district, Trump state, uh, and his ability to connect with voters. Um, he didn't necessarily, he didn't win by nine, right? Which many of the polls thought he would, but he still won handily. And that's really impressive in a state that went for the president by 42 points. Um, oh, he was also helped a little by Republican difficulties in the primaries. Yes. Right? Yes, he was. Right. He was. Which, which were not, not as much as he could have been. Now, <laughs> right. <laughs> he was governor before he pointed the center. Right? Yeah. I have a pet theory that I have no evidence for, but it seems natural is that people who win statewide office as governors where party polarization hasn't quite reached a level as national offices can develop a personal man better and when they shift over to national office they can carry some of that with them. Um, and so, I mean, you see plenty of governors who are off parties in places that they shouldn't be, like Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. Or here in Maryland too, um, where people can develop personal brands that insulate themselves at that state level because governors are doing things that aren't about national politics. They're doing sort of street level bureaucracy things that, that actually deliver services to people. And then if they flip over to a national party situation where they're running for Senate, uh, they may be able to carry some of that personal brand with them that insulates them a little bit from the partisan. I have no evidence for this, but it seems likely, and Manchin is certainly decent evidence of that. Um, and so if someone like Baker ran for a Senate in Massachusetts, you wouldn't call him a favorite, but you'd have to take him seriously. So if you think about how the Senate ranks seniority, right? They rank seniority based on how much house service you've had, and then whether you were a governor, and then whether you were in the cabinet. Yeah. So I think this has been historic, that the Senate has recognized that state-level right. uh, run. Well, we got a huge freshman class. Yeah. Could be historic. 90, right? Almost. We got 90. What we think? Think we have 91 for sure in the house, right? With the, with um, six races still outstanding. Six races. One of which is guaranteed. The California 39 race guaranteed to produce a freshman. So we have 92 will be freshmen. By the way, just as a total aside, being one of those freshmen who comes to orientation this week at the Capitol who hasn't secured their race yet. Like, both of the people from California 39 are here this yeah, week yeah. <laughs> learning about how to be a congressman and hobnobbing with the other congressmen and fancy news at the Capitol, and one of them ain't going to be a congressman. And really important, they both get to vote in leadership races if they happen before their races are called. Yes, and right. this this actually played a part a few years back, back to Harkins History Corner. So you go back to um, the Doloro um, Menendez race when they were both running for, I think it was probably whip it back when and it turned out to be a one vote race and they had at least two people vote in that race that were not confirmed at the time because they ran the leadership races right away so we can kind of transition into right. the republicans did their leadership races yes. but the house democrats they did not and just as background this period uh after the elections but before the new 116th congress begins on january 3rd there's a lame duck period where they'll be doing legislating the current congress yeah current congress being legislating but more importantly in some sense uh this week and then after thanksgiving for a week or so the parties are going to be having their organizing meetings they're going to be setting the rules for their party uh the majority party in the house the democrats are going to be drafting up new house rules and they're going to be assigning committees to the new freshmen and the people who want to change around they've been picking committee chairs and they're going to be picking their leaders and this is really important stuff for 
for uh, politics going forward in the next two years. The Democrats have put off their leadership elections in part because there's a little bit of dissension in the Democratic Party over the leadership elections. Um, if you've been following the news at all this week, Speaker Pelosi has been adamantly uh, reiterating that she is going to be the Speaker of the House, and yet a small, tiny minority of the Democratic Party is telling people that they are going to vote against her on the House floor and block her speakership. And uh, I don't know what to make of this. I've probably spent half my time this week thinking about it. But because Jonathan is so knowledgeable about American politics, we have him here. We're going to have him tell us what he thinks of it first. <laughs> oh, I'm on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Nancy Pelosi has been a first-rate party leader. First, She was a first-rate speaker for four years. Um, if you date the, the modern speakership back to Tip O'Neill, he's the only one who compares to her as far as the ability to do this job. Um, you know, I, when I talk about president, I always talk about presidenting, so I don't know if there's a speakering word. <laughs> well, there is now. Um, but, but, but she's, you know, awful good at speakering, awful good at party leadering, um, picking her spots, knowing how to cut deals, knowing how to count votes, which obviously is extremely important in this context. And um, raising money, too. And raising... Yeah, I'm skeptical of that. Yeah, because yeah. Ryan did that, too. I mean, think of what he did. Just well, basically... Cause when Kevin title, McCarthy right? was the presumed speaker for that one week after John Boehner announced he was going to yeah. leave, Kevin McCarthy raised millions of dollars in one week, and it had nothing to do with his fundraising ability. Yeah, right? I think that's a function of, of your yeah. place and not your person. You're the person deciding yeah. what uh, gets voted on. Like, of course they're going to want to see you. <laughs> like, yeah, of course so, they at least are like, hello, how are you? Yes, I you still got to be willing to go out and do it, though. Yes. Yes. Okay, well, evidently, but, but the title, the title like, raises He's not going to spend all his weekends away, but he's doing fine in terms of fundraising. He's evidently become the most historic fundraiser. Again, I, I do think this is a function of position more than anything yeah. else. Yeah. Now, not not purely. Right. Yeah. Now, we do know there have been a couple of people who are especially good at it, and maybe she is, but but primarily it's about right. position. Right. Um, but, yeah, and, and you know... One of the things about Pelosi is that I think she has been underappreciated, especially by liberals. Um, liberals, progressives, were very disappointed about um, what they got out of the Obama administration um, because that's their job, is to want everything, and then it turns out that you only get some things. And, um, so that, and, and she was a bit of a scapegoat to liberals for, for some of the things. Um, when they weren't beating up on Ronald Manuel or whatever. Um, so how does that play out now? Are the liberals going to be the ones who are going to bring her down? And, what, and what's interesting is that I think that they are now mobilizing in, in her favor. Um, the, the dissenters are, for the most part, on the conservative side of the caucus, um, which you have to remember is still nowhere close to the most liberal Republicans. There's no, right. there's a huge gulf in between them. So one of the things that's really not viable is the option of saying, oh, we'll caucus with the other party. Right. There, there's, you know, somebody like Tim Ryan is not going to mm -hmm. switch parties without major disruptions right. to his life. Um, so what they effectively have on the floor is a small group that could deny her the speakership, but doesn't have any uh, obvious way to unite with anyone else to put anyone in the speakership, which makes it sort of a negative veto threat, but not a threat to actually abandon the Democratic Party. It still makes it extremely tricky, uh, and I think this yeah. is uh, this is a really good point that she, Pelosi probably wants somebody to run against, yeah. and I think that the people who are organizing against her 
know that that's a death nail for them. But <laughs> as soon as they propose someone, right. like say Marsha Fudge, <laughs> who has been out there, uh, she she crushes them, right. and, and that's essentially what she's been doing for 16 years. Is sort of like quashing dissent against her, effectively. Uh, for reasons of just being very good at her job and then also like just literally crushing careers at times. Right. Um, but I think that it's something that the, the, the insurgents know is that they have to clear the deck before other candidates can even get into the fold. Because anybody one-on-one versus Pelosi loses. Right. right. This is the reason why Steny Hoyer, who has the most support not named Nancy Pelosi, uh, is not running against her because he knows he's going to lose. He doesn't have the votes. It's that simple. Um, but until she's gone, I don't think there's any space for another candidate to emerge. Yeah, and I mean, I think the, the bigger question here is, you know, they have these insurgents on the one hand, but you also have this general dissatisfaction across the party with the calcification of the leadership over the last 15 years. And with Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn, and Clyburn didn't join until 2007, I don't think, but Pelosi and Hoyer have been there since 2002, so that's 15 years, and Clyburn you know, uh, over a decade of the same top three people. And like you say, we've seen people not necessarily running out of town in all cases, but shuffled aside, whether it's Van Hollen or Becerra or Emanuel or Larson. Or Mendez. Mendez, all these people who could have been future leaders or groomed, uh, they made a strategic choice not to groom them, partially in order to hold on to their own power. And now you have three people who are 78 years old and no obvious bench. They successfully created no obvious bench. And now with Crowley losing, in New York in the primaries, there really isn't someone that you would naturally say that they want to install if they were to step down. And Sanchez is stepping down as vice chair of the caucus. Crowley is out. So you literally have a void below right. the top three. Larson's um, out too, right? Right. Well, yeah. I don't think Larson is running. Larson's right. not currently in. No, right. Right. And so you've only got Diana DeGette from Colorado who's running against Jim Clyburn for the number three spot. But that's it. That's right. really it. Um, there is a void in the House of Representatives in terms of known leadership quality, right? Like Having won an elective spot within the caucus. Like you said, this does fuel the insurgents too because if they can just get her shadow boxing against some ideal mythical candidate, that's the best case scenario for them because any person they put up is going to be inexperienced and have a lot of flaws. Uh, so I don't know what their play is here. If they're really trying to bring her down, it must be some sort of play to just not have a candidate to like to the floor or get someone off the sidelines, but well, I just don't see it. It's the same playbook that we saw four years ago, though, isn't it? When they were trying to take out Boehner. They didn't necessarily have a candidate to take Boehner out with, but the idea was mm-hmm. let's force him to have to get to a second ballot and then he yeah. will not run again. Right. And so I would say that that, this, that, that page would have worked had they stuck with it, yep. right? When Cantor had lost and it was the same kind of obvious play. And so I, my guess is that's the play they're making. If she loses on the first ballot, She'll step down, and then you might see somebody like Hoyer say, okay, I'm, I'm for Nancy, but if she's out, you know, I take your support. It's hard for me to believe that this freshman class, and after this election, they're going to put in Steny Hoyer. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of women, and there are a lot. There are what, what, We have the statistics on this of how many... Um, Democratic members, the percentage of Democratic members that are white men. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like 30 or 40 something. Yeah, it's, it's under 40% now. 38, 38 You know, after an election like this, going to, what is he, 78? I mean, yeah. Hoyer is beloved by inside the, the Capitol, but right. he's not well-known outside the Capitol. Um, he is not somebody who's going to make people who mobilized most of which was women's energy and you know all these resistance groups um, it's it's it would be extremely awkward for the Democrats to 
cashier Pelosi fork wear. Not to I, mention, I feel like Pelosi would go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The idea of her stepping down, so Hoyer, I mean, there's that, they, they've had a good working relationship over the last 15 years. I don't think it's undeniable. But they also have undeniably had personal animosity dating back to their competition for these posts. Um, to the degree where I do think it's one thing that does you know, blind her in an ego sense. One of her flaws is that she just doesn't like her. At the same time, like he's the he's the other Democrat with the most support. Mm-hmm. Right? He's got he had hundred and fifty five Democrats come out support him in a public letter. It included every ranking current ranking member who's gonna be a chair. It it included every single senior Democrat on there as far as I could tell. Um, anybody of any significance in the Democratic caucus is supporting Hoyer as the number two. He's got his own personal power base. You've got Steny people and then you've got Nancy people in the Democratic Party, and so just because they knock off her doesn't immediately make it obvious either that he's going anywhere. Um, And it's hard for me to see anybody leapfrogging him as well. It would be very difficult. It could happen. I'm not saying it could be like the Senate, right? It'd be it's gonna be very very interesting to watch. But it could be like the Senate, right, where Durbin got leapfrogged by Schumer. I mean, you can argue whether it was leapfrog or not. I'm gonna say it was when Reid left um, because Schumer came up behind, and then supposedly was kind of an equal, and then leaped him. So I guess you could see something like that. But then you have to say, okay, then who's the person who does that leapfrogging? When you had Schumer, he was in a place. Who's the person in that place? Oh, that would be Clyburn. Right. Just not really seeing him making that leap. Okay, who's the guy right below Clyburn? Oh, that would be John Lewis. Yeah, not not so much. And then we get back to this, who do they have in their like mid-50s to early 60s who's got that experience and we just named all those people who are no longer here. So a lot of the names we're talking about are late 40s, right? I mean, there's almost a whole generation of Democrats who just don't exist in power in the leadership in the House. Josh brought up something this morning we were talking about here in the office is that the, the these all these ranking members who are about to become committee chairs, they have a very vested conservative interest in not messing with the power structure right now. They're about to ascend, and the last thing they want to do is topple the entire leadership and create a situation where their own chairmanships could, in theory, be, be in trouble if there is this new kind of um, new kind of majority that takes over and so uh, to the degree that they have control of the situation they're going to be very vested in keeping the current leadership probably for just one more Congress I mean I think that is probably the deal here is that that's at the least, obvious deal to everybody yeah. right it's just it's come out and say this is the end of the line for the current leadership and let them have one more one more term and I, I don't know if that would buy off kind of the, the change types but one thing is that these people who say they're holding out and you know Matt Fuller's reporting that they've got a letter signed by 17 people none of the 17 people in that letter are people who want these leadership posts themselves right. they just seem to want to shake up the tree and change things which is somewhat different than the Freedom Caucus we have people who seem to actually have ambitions to the leadership or known proxies right so maybe they want Jordan to be but maybe they just really want to back Scalise to move in these people don't even seem to have like a, a champion that they're that they're holding up no it, it, this goes back a while though I mean this is not the first time that Pelosi has been like challenged for leadership she lost or she beat Tim Ryan Right, who nobody had heard of right. the, before at the beginning of this Congress, right. and she beat she beat him by losing a third of the caucus, which yeah. was that's a significant loss when you when you lose sixty out of one hundred and ninety people, that's that's a big deal, um, and so this goes back a little ways. I mean, you had people like Ed Perlmutter, who's currently on the letter and kind of pushing this revolt, uh, who's been seeking a lot of changes to Congress. He wants to see chairman term limited. He wants to see the power structure sort of open up so that others can kind of make their way in, and that's really the basis of it. It's not ideological necessarily I don't know that it's really like gender or ethnically based this is just simply like they've been at the top for 16 years that's 80% longer than the entire house has been in the house right and so 
somebody has to go, right? Somebody needs to shift up so that some of these other people can, that are eager to join leadership can. And I really do think it's like a personal power type thing, a la Richard Fenno back in the day where members want to have influence and the way that the leadership has been running is they have been barred from that. Well, I, I, I've been betting against Pelosi for over a decade now. <laughs> I, I thought she was going in 2010, so that tells you what I know. But when Heath Schuler challenged her right. in 2010, he got 40-something votes in the caucus and a, and, and a handful of votes on the floor. But that was more ideological, I would yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the blue dog revolt. But yeah. I also thought at that moment when he did that, wow, if someone real had challenged her, you might have had a dogfight, right? If Van Hollen had said, hmm, there's something going on here. I'll and I don't think Van Hollen ever would have done that. But for 40 votes for Heath Schuler, who was completely not prepared to be the Speaker of the House in any sense, or even mounting a real campaign, showed a dissatisfaction that was already brewing. So let me throw out something in the caucus rules. Think about this. What if they put in the same rules that the Republicans have? Think about how many new Democratic members we have of the stats that you were just giving out. What if they put six-year term limits on the chairman? Would you think that would buy off some of these new people? I mean, is this a possibility? You're going to have a lot of pressure from all these new members who, once they are here for two years, they're going to realize they got nowhere to go. I'm so, Jonathan. Well, I, you know, I, th I think all of us are against committee term limits. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is true. That's well. The other way that you buy them off is you could actually have functioning subcommittees, which once existed. Um, the deuce, you say? <laughs> in the 1970s and 1980s, and of course you had functioning committees. Even 90s, actually. And actually, up through 94. I mean, yeah, I worked up, on a yes, subcommittee up, up through on the science committee, yes. and we did 60 hearings in two years. Yes, a science committee. Well, you know, if 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 being a subcommittee chair is important, which again I agree, it was right up through 1994, mm -hmm. um, and even though we had reasonably strong speakers in the seven, you know, up through 94. You know, we're not talking about the pre-reformed speakers. That's a way to buy up. To, then all of a sudden, you know, more than half of the caucus has a subcommittee, and everybody else can sort of anticipate that they'll get a subcommittee pretty soon. So mm -hmm. that I. That's the way I'd rather buy off all. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, because the only committee where you're really going to see some real new blood is going to be veterans, right? Takano is the most likely chairman of the Veterans Committee. He's been in for, what, six years maybe? Yeah. Um, it also says something about the Veterans Committee, I think. And, <laughs> and, the, and the reason that electorally it doesn't help you. So people don't stay yeah. there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Science Committee, I think, is similar, but Eddie Bernice Johnson has NASA facilities near her district. Makes sense for her to be here, so therefore she stays there. And I still don't understand uh, small business and why Velasquez is still there, but her other committee being financial services, she's high up there, but mm -hmm. she's not going to be chair. Okay, it's a place to park for a while. But for the rest of these committees, you take, kind of take a look down them. There's a lot of gray hair on the Democratic side yeah. of these committees. Right. I mean, we were looking at Diane Gett, who struck me much more and has always been a much more policy-oriented member out of Colorado. She's dug deep into her policy work. I mean, she does a lot of stuff on an Energy and Commerce Committee. But I was like, man, she's got to be up for a chairman soon. And it, you look down the list, she's like, what, fifth? Six. She'll be fifth, six, or six fifth, fifth after on the, the committee. And yeah. she's been here for a good long time. Um, meanwhile, you look over on the Republican side, and if you've been here for six years, you're probably a ranking member at this point in time, right? That's how much turnover they've had. Yeah. Uh, you have yeah. people on the Ways and Means Committee who have been here for six, eight years, and, and, and they're going to be ranking on many subcommittees. And on the Republican side, they just lost half the right. Ways and Means members. They lost 12 members of the Ways oh. and Means Committee, either to retirement or to elections. I mean, that's astounding. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, some of this is that 
changes in technology and changes how campaigns are run and the ability to fundraise nationally and reach an audience has made freshman members much more interested in accumulating power much more quickly than they used to. The idea of getting to Congress and spending six or eight years just cultivating your district and building up a personal brand and things like that seems to be going by the wayside and people are having kind of star power and national attention earlier and they want actual raw power in the house more now and if they can't get it through the committee system if they can't get it in kind of the traditional ways they're going to do things like try and organize outside the system on the floor and, and, um, and it'll be interesting to look at the exact demographics i have a couple of ideas in my head but a lot of these new democrats they ain't 40. There are a handful who are in their 60s, and so they're not going to be here for 10 years or so. Yeah. I've talked to at least one who's like, yeah, I'm probably here for 8 or 10 years, and that's it. In, in which case, what you're saying, Matt, is exactly right. They don't have time to sit around and accumulate power. Yeah. They're going to have to try to figure out how to make it work in a hurry. Well, and this strikes, this, this is an interesting point, because there are a lot of talented Democrats in the ranks that nobody's ever heard of, right? And that's simply because there's been a logjam at the top. If Nancy Pelosi were to go, and you would think of, like, who are some of the most obvious people who may uh, submit their candidacy, right? Adam Schiff, who's Schiff, currently sure, chair yeah. at the Intel Committee. Sherry Bustos, who is currently DCCC chair, right? You have Hakeem Jeffries, who is backed by the CBC. You've got somebody that the Hispanic Caucus would absolutely like to be back. Maybe not Linda Sanchez now, but um, there's somebody else who would, who would <laughs> absolutely get her head. That's right, the other Castro. I mean, there, there are tons of people who are eager to jump into leadership, and I think that's what this all goes That'd around. That'd be but, interesting. Twin brothers, president and speaker of the house. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm <laughs> Surprised that that he hasn't. At least one is. Oh God, I'm Juliana's the one who's who was mayor. It's um, Joaquin. 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 Sorry. Um, I, I'm betraying my city by not. Knowing <laughs> um, I, he he isn't leaping into any of the leadership, and I sort of had pegged him for that path, but perhaps not. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting, but it's all kind of hones around Nancy Pelosi leaving. Which is, I don't think she's going to do this Congress. Right. And two, how are they going to make, like, where's the transition team here, right? This right. is this whole thing is like, we're going to transition to the next generation. Meanwhile, oh, by the way, there are going to be no new people in leadership. <laughs> well, <laughs> let, me, let, me just, let, me, let me slightly, it, it, it sort of has to do with Nancy Pelosi, but it equally has to do with the others not yeah, leaving. Right, with, right. With, with well, that's right. And Clyburn not leaving. Right, like, I don't think it would be particularly difficult if Clyburn was willing to step down for them to put Jeffries into the leadership or a different CBC member, Barbara Lee, right? Or even Marsha Fudge. I I don't think that's the answer, but that sure. certainly seems like something that the CBC more or less controls once Clyburn gives his consent to it, that there's going to be an African-American member of the leadership who's going to be prominent. I, the bigger picture for me here, though, is like what are the consequences of a leadership not change or change? And personally for me, I don't think the Democrats could possibly be better served than it Pelosi is in the speakership. I think it would be... Oh, maybe not a disaster, but certainly a marginal negative to have anyone else leading the party heading into the 116th Congress. And I, this is for all sorts of reasons, but mostly because I, I think she is probably the best legislative strategist they have, and I don't even think it's close. And to the degree that someone new is not going to be able to rein in uh, the progressive faction as they seek to sort of go nuts uh, with the Trump administration, I think she's the perfect person for that job. And if you want to bottle up impeachment until the time is right, if it's ever right, she's the person for that job, too. And, and part of what gives her that power is her staffing. She does an excellent job with her leadership staff at being able to do this. And right now, there's going to be a dearth of staff on the Democratic side. We're adding how many? 40 new Democratic seats. 
and it's and it's been eight years since Democrats have been in charge. So they're doubling all of their committee sizes as well. It's not as if these people have been waiting tables for eight years when they were last committee staffers, hoping to find a job back again. This is going to be hard. And you're right, Matt. I think if Pelosi decides or if Pelosi is not there, whoever comes in to be speaker is actually going to have a really hard time getting good staff mm. to make it work because all that other staff has these other places to be. Right, let me ask a question about that. something that I'm concerned about and don't know. Most of, like you said, most of the incoming chairs are gray hairs mm-hmm. uh, that have been around for quite some time. Um, I had heard, and you know, I'm not in Washington, so I don't hear this stuff as, as regularly, but that uh, there had been a, quite a bit of senior staff attrition when some of the Waxmans and George Millers and all left. Very true. Do, do, do you all have a sense of how, whether these committees are ready to do serious oversight? Do they have the staff in place? They Will do they, not. Can they get the staff in place? They do not. I don't know if they can or not. I mean, oversight people are a special breed. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people are grown, and I don't know where. Uh, but it's not as if you can take an L.A. out of a personal office and make them into an oversight person. For the most part, they got to come out of GAO. Or the best place that you get your good oversight people is the media. You pull investigative reporters out. Those guys are by far the best because they have the contacts and they have the skill set to know what they do. Now, whether that will be what you should watch, if you're watching those people come out of media into Congress, into these positions, then they've got a shot. Otherwise, there's just not nearly enough talent around. Because there's a real, you know, we we think this is going to be an oversight Congress and not a legislative Congress. Right, yes. and I do think that, the dem- and, and there's a real question, are they going to do responsible, serious oversight, or are they going to do, you know, partisan... Gotcha oversight. Gotcha oversight. They're going to do both. And, and some, <laughs> there's not, not nothing wrong with doing the some partisan stuff. Right, right. But, you know, we think that there's probably a lot of stuff to oversee that's been going on in this administration. And then there's all the sort of regular bureaucratic stuff that isn't, has nothing to do with Trump. But that there has been no oversight from Capitol Hill for the last umpteen years. Yeah. You know, it's been it's been a while since they've been in the majority, and you, I mean, a lot of those staffers left to get career positions, either law firms or in the agencies or wherever it may be. And it's a question of whether they're going to return or not. I think it's a big question of whether this Congress is going to be prepared to do the type of oversight they really want to do. Um, it's not clear to me that that's going to be the case. Now, the committee making five, six, seven, ten times as much. On could, the be, as could be, could be, depending. Three, right? but uh, <laughs> still three is a big number. It too. could be right. Some of the like former energy and commerce staffers that left after they lost the majority, I'm sure, doing fine. Yeah. Right. Um, but I don't. I don't know. I, I know that you have some very, very talented staffers that are there. But you're doubling your staff on every single committee, right? Are you going to be able to have the kind of granular focus that you need with the time of specialized staffers that you need in order to do the oversight that you want? That's an open question. Some areas you will, right? I think in in, uh, environment, I think those staffers exist. They're at the nonprofits. They're at Sierra Club, whatever. Those people will come back. I think folks are energy and commerce. You'll be able to find people in health, right? That's not going to be a problem. It's going to be, I think, harder in a place like Interior to find those good staff to fill it out. Um, I'm trying to think what other committee would be hard. I mean, judiciary will be fascinating to watch. There are going to be all these wannabes who think they're going to be the next, you know, TV star for impeachment. <laughs> so you got to be a little bit careful with the guys that get there. But you know, Conyers was there for like 17 decades, <laughs> and so you've got a new a new chairman in town for the first time. Nadler kind of took over midterm. This is going to be his first chance for him to put an imprint on it. It'll be interesting to see what kind of staff he brings in. 
Um, but yeah, for some of these areas, it'll be okay. But for others, there's just a dearth of talent. And there's no, you know, the Department of the Interior may deserve a little bit of oversight. <laughs> At high level, for the high level sort of Trump scandal oversight, uh, how much coordination do you think will come from the leadership and how much will these committee chairs be left on their own? I'm thinking of Neil at Ways and Means going after Trump's taxes and Cummings at OGR just kind of doing whatever he wants to do and Nadler at Judiciary. Obviously Pelosi will have some sort of thoughts about how to rein this stuff in, but these committee chairs are also going to want to be able to be aggressive on their own. Do you, do you foresee a problem with them all sort of acting in their own? So here's the good news about the Greybeards, right? They all know each other. And for the most part, there aren't a lot of antagonistic relationships between these various people. Um, there haven't been these big uh, jurisdictional battles over this stuff in the past. So I think that Pelosi, assuming a Pelosi becomes speaker, she's already indicated that she wants to have control over this. And I think her staff will try to coordinate, again, because we don't have the talent to be able to, for everybody to read all the boxes of information they're going to get. There's going to have to be some coordination. Um, do we have wild cards like uh, the Republicans had on OGR? Cummings is not the same kind of wild card. I think he will do um, what makes the most sense for the party writ large, understanding he's got a big piece of it. You know, Think about a Benny Thompson over at Homeland Security. Is he going to try to do something to Trump Cummings? I don't see it. So I do believe that these guys are going to work together. I think with Neil over at Ways and Means, he's got his own little independent tax return thing that he gets to feed the information to others, but everybody's going to rely on him, and he can pretty much do what he wants. And he's seen as a as a serious legislator. Um, so I don't think that you're going to have a problem with that, because I'm trying to think, who is any person who's really kind of out there a little bit trying to run for president, right? I mean, that was what you'd think. And I can't think of any of these chairmen. Takano's the one where you have to wonder a little bit about because he had he's not the great beard. So maybe the Veterans Committee gets a little bit too far out there. And again, there's places to look at for the Veterans Committee. Well, so we'll see how it plays out. Strikes, but that would be my read. It strikes me that there are going to be a couple different buckets of oversight, right? There's going to be the legitimate, like, hey, you bought a $30,000 table <laughs> sort of <laughs> sort of oversight. Like, uh, you've used the private helicopter too many times. Why do you have a flag that is your own? Like, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of oversight. So outside of interior. There's plenty of but stuff. Yes, Carson, there's, there's, there's plenty of stuff to go around where like committees Education. with specialized jurisdiction and knowledge with agent, former agency people staffing the committees there's going to be stuff where they can do deep 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 EPA right um, they're going to go deep into those areas and they'll be left to do sort of like the individual uh, legitimate taxpayer funded type stuff uh, and abuses of power uh, within the agencies and then there's the political bucket which is how do we time out the release of a tax return going after trump hotel in dc uh trying to locate what's going on with russia how how you know tied in is adam schiff going to be into the rest of the oversight uh, uh plan i think that's going to be much more leadership focused because you're going to need to coordinate coordinate between multiple different committees for different political purposes and timing right timing is going to matter a lot on, on those political issues and i think that they'll get very, very involved and stuff. Um, so I think Neil has plenty of stuff to look at over at, at Ways and Means, but I also think uh, that the leadership team, whoever it is, will want to be involved with like the tax return stuff or uh, tax returns from the hotel in DC or whatever it may be. Yes whatever or no. Other, like political scandal. Pelosi will be able to stop Al Green from bringing a question of privilege impeachment resolution in the first couple months. 
stop him from bringing it to the floor. Yeah. No. We'll be she for, can't stop we'll him. He'll be forced to table it on the floor. They'll be forced to table it. She can't stop him. But she can table it or she can refer it to committee. Yeah, no, I don't doubt she, she'll be able to table it, but yeah. uh, a more powerful ability would be able to stop it from even coming up, which, you know, she, she can try. She can strong arm. She can yeah, persuade. She can tell, you know. I, and we also don't know. I mean, between now and January, things may look very different than they do now. And we'll see if there's going to be indictments or we'll see if there's not going to be, you know, then we might. Right. So, you know, impeachment may look very different January 3rd than it does. So between now and January 3rd, we do, of course, have an actual legislative session of Congress, of the 115th Congress that's going to take place. And we have a lot of major issues in the docket. This week, of course, the president has come out in favor of a bipartisan criminal justice reform, which is, uh, lo and behold, an actual bipartisan thing coming out of Congress that I think a lot of people across the map actually think is good policy. Um, whether that is a precursor to future relations between the president and the Democratic Party, who knows? But it is something already here in the lame duck. We're seeing that um, sort of ex-ante people might be surprised that Democrats are now working with the Trump administration towards time and goals. Yeah, there's only one fly in the ointment there, right? Senator Cotton. Yeah, Senator Cotton yeah, seems to be. And to say that he's going to throw up roadblocks to that, and there's some speculation that maybe he's doing it at the uh, behest of the majority leader. Mm-hmm. So it will be fascinating to see, but you're right, there is that. I mean, obviously the, the big thing that's on the table is the last appropriations bills. Yep. Right? We got five of the 12 appropriations bills done. There's seven of them still left. However, of the $1.4 trillion, give or take, that we appropriate for this year, 1.2 was in those first five. Right. So we're only talking about $200 billion. Okay, only, he says, um, in those seven bills. But that, I think, his, the last two times the Democrats have flipped a house, what they have done is they've come in and they've done a full year CR for whatever bills are left. It'll be interesting to see if that's the gameplay this time. Um, I, I, so my impression is that Democrats are not interested in extending this thing out into the 116th Congress for good reason. They want to start fresh and get their own things running. Um, I also think the other thing about December 7th is that no matter where you turn, everyone and their brother has something they want to jam onto this thing because it is the last train leaving town. And that can be a Mueller protection bill. If you're Democrats or Mueller protection-minded Republicans, that can be money for the border wall. It can be deals on anything you want to deal on that looks like it's tough to go. And, you know, there's a lot of wild cards here. One is kind of just the brinkmanship play of this. You know, what can you get in there and what will Trump veto? You know, what, you know, what, where are people going to align? And the second is there's a wild card here, which is what does Paul Ryan want to do in kind of the clean the barn sense? Paul who? Yeah, exactly, right? We have one player leaving town who has a ton of power and no electoral uh, disincentives facing him in the future. And, you know, when Boehner stepped down in 2015, is that right? Yeah, 2015, 30 years ago. ago, uh, Boehner's last move was to take one of these votes where he used very few Republicans and very little of the Republican leadership and combined with Democrats to set the table for the Congress going forward, including debt limit increase and things like that. Well, that was to set Paul Ryan up for yeah. success, right? I mean, right. these were some of the his biggest picadellos, so to speak, where he had biggest sticking points getting across the line because his caucus was so divided on things like budgets and appropriations and debt ceilings. So he was like, I wanted to get this out of the way for Paul Ryan. Like, Paul Ryan doesn't have that issue, and he I don't think he necessarily cares whether he puts Nancy Pelosi in a bad spot. 
and then 116th. Um, so I don't know that that's necessarily going to weigh real huge on that. I do think you pointed out the big questions. Are we going to have border wall money and are we going to have a Mueller protection bill stuck, like crammed into this thing? Um, and border wall money is, I mean, that's like a shorthand for a bigger immigration deal because it's not going to come on its own. No. But like border wall money will come with a, a DACA deal or something like that. If, right? if it happens, right? Right. It's some sort of immigration realm right. deal. Well, they're, they're, they're floating. Well, it seems very unlikely to me. Yes. Right? They're floating there. Oh, we're going to stick it to the Democrats by putting border It's like you're not putting border wall money in there. It's just, that's not going to be a thing. But uh, it is going to be a question whether or not they can get... Um, the Mueller protection bill into the last appropriations vehicle because I know the Democrats are real jazzed up about that now that you have Mr. Whitaker heading up the Justice Department. Um, but who knows if that's actually going to happen? Seems like a very last minute. No, I mean, other than the, the interesting thing is, I, I think we all agree Trump would not actually veto over the border wall. Um, I'm not there quite yet. <laughs> I, I think, okay, I think he's a wimp. I don't think. But Three over, of the four of us agree on that. Over, over Mueller, that I could see him vetoing, if if they can, if they can somehow or another move, maneuver it into the bill in the first place. Right. My so my position on these things, and this goes back into the Obama administration, is that once you get a supermajority in the Senate to agree to something, the president is much more unlikely to veto it unless it's specifically a Congress versus the president issue over separation of powers, which Mueller would be. I, in some sense, it would be, but in other senses, once the Republicans ratify this, it, it seems like him vetoing at that point would be almost as dangerous to him as him as him not as him not vetoing it and allowing this to you know interfere with his free hand there. So I don't know. I I think it would be a, a very dangerous moment for him if that got out of Congress do with you, that and a very difficult decision. Do you think he would see the danger? I mean, that's my... <laughs> no, I mean, quite seriously. Yeah, I mean, politically point. speaking, he sees danger in a very different way. Yeah. Well, the problem is if, if, if you're Trump and you veto and you shut down the government over the Mueller thing, then the government shuts down on December 7th or perhaps a week or two yeah. after that, which means the government's going to be shut down through Christmas and New Year's, and then you come back and your situation is worse because you have a Democratic House. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense to... to shut down the government over that. If he can't rally McConnell to squash the thing, or rally Ryan at this point to squash the thing, you you eat it. Like you yeah. said, if you get the supermajority in the Senate, it's sort of too yeah. late. I think that's the better argument, is the supermajority in the Senate. But when you're see, watching people like, I mean, who's going to be the next chairman? Has, has Grassley announced what he's going to share yet? I haven't seen it. He's got three opportunities. I finance. It's fine. I mean, it's either finance, judiciary, or I can't remember what the third is. But he's got the choice, and if he decides to take finance, then you got Lindsey Graham sitting over the Judiciary right. Committee as Lindsey the new chair. Just Judiciary chair, unless he becomes Attorney General. this is line, the, it's it, been reported that he's in line to be Judiciary Chair. If we're ever going to have Attorney Generals again, right? Yes, right. <laughs> we're apparently never going to have an EPA administrator again. Well, yeah, but that's not unusual. EPA is weird, and they, it's hard to put people there, and. They don't mind having acting people. It's a long time with an acting. Yeah, it is a long time. With, with unified government. Right. You're right. Oh, it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> right. Don't get me wrong. But um, EPS, like, yeah, it's a little sub-agency. Who cares? We don't really want to do anything anyway. Um, but we'll, um, what will be fascinating will be uh, if somebody like Graham can get enough people together so it's not a supermajority in the Senate to pass a bill, right? Maybe you can get, I don't know if they get a bill through the Senate without border wall money. 
I just don't know. It's hard to. Well, if Graham's lining up to be AG, he can't like any Mueller protection bill either, right? But he, I think he's going to realize his power staying in. I mean, he watched what happened to his buddy Jeff. He isn't going to play that game again. My, my impression is that any actual nominee for permanent attorney general position is going to be under intense questioning to declare that they won't interfere with the Mueller investigation right. uh, by part, in a bipartisan fashion and that whoever that nominee is, grandma otherwise, is going to have to declare in front of the Senate in public that they won't interfere with the Mueller investigation. Um, yeah, you know, maybe with, with caveats, you know, if, if Mueller starts spending money or going off the, off the rails or whatever, right? But they're going to have to basically say that it's not their position to interfere in that as it's currently been, you know, conducted and things like that. And so I... I I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Graham wants to do, but I don't think he's going to be able to become attorney general with a free hand any more than, uh, than yeah, anyone he, else. I think he's got much more strength trying to get judges through the judiciary, and he's going to do that. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, Grassley was talking about trying to be not put in a Supreme Court justice in the last year of the president's term, if that came up, because that seems to be the president. I don't think that Graham would follow that. I think you'd see that I don't that think any of them will follow that. Um, I think Grassley might actually do it if he stuck around, but I think that's one of the reasons why he's not going to stick around, because he made a mistake saying it, and he knows it, he needs to get out. Um, so I don't In know. the old days, anybody would always want finance over judiciary. And right. <laughs> I don't, right. know, I don't know what, but I mean, but what's in these the, what you're doing absolutely in nothing in except the, confirming I mean, judges. There right. may be judiciary for the You know, some of this is about the structure of the 116th Congress, and I've been on this beat for a while. But it's not just divided government; it's divided Congress, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that means essentially very little legislation because the budget resolution and reconciliation instructions won't be available for them. Uh, the Congressional Review Act won't be available to them. And so everything uh, short of destroying the legislative filibuster is going to require a suit majority in the Senate, which basically makes it a non-starter, um, even if you could get something through the House. And so confirming judges is probably a big portion of what Republicans see as their possibilities in the 116th Congress. And that makes judiciary a much more powerful spot, uh, at least in theory, than finance. Yeah. But I think Grassley's... Um, stewardship of the committee during the Kavanaugh hearings is going to lead many members to desire him to leave the committee. <laughs> All right. Well, we have reached 53 minutes, oh and everybody knows that nobody listens to a podcast <laughs> at 54 minutes. So uh, here's where we're going to do a little wrap-up. Do we have any big takeaways coming uh, coming up in the near future? Matt? Big takeaways for the near future? That's right. Uh, I... Um, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is changes to the House rules, which we did not touch on, but the majority party uh, coming into the House gets to rewrite the House rules, and the Democratic Party came out with some proposals uh, that hit the Washington Post yesterday about things they might change in the House rules. Most of them I thought were window dressing. There's some adjustments to uh, the discharge petition to make it easier for uh, majorities to get things onto the floor if the leadership's against them, Um, and there weren't a whole lot of surprises in there. I thought one thing that looked good in there is uh, it looks like they're going to move against the motion to vacate in the House, which has been a weapon that uh, rump factions have used in the Republican Party to try and threaten the speakership. Uh, as it turns out, using the question of privilege uh, technique, you can get a question onto the floor anytime unilaterally about whether the speaker's chair should be vacated, and this was used to threaten Boehner and to a certain degree Ryan. And uh, for kind of the sanity of the House representatives, it'd probably be good if that goes. So I'm glad to see that they're going to try to address that. Well, I was going to say the same thing, so I'm going to piggyback on that. But one of the things that I, I actually don't agree with getting rid of that thing, I think if you want to 
to vote on whether or not the leader should be the leader, then you should vote on it. Right? I don't have a problem with that at all. One of the things that I do have a hiccup with is that they're proposing a joint committee to study the reorganization of Congress, which is something that they do every about 30 years or so. Um, and these things never turn out to be all that much fun, uh, simply because when you appoint a joint committee to study the reorganization of Congress, the people that are appointing that joint committee happen to be the people that have all the power, like the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader. And these often come out to be uh, big, important uh, uh, committee reports that nonetheless fail when they go to the floor or they're co-opted or they're changed or something along those lines. Um, and it strikes me that the reform movement is picking up uh, a significant steam in the last few years, both on the Democratic and the Republican side. Um, but it doesn't quite seem like they're hitting the right notes in terms of what they want. If they want, what they want is a decentralization of power away from speakers and party leaders, then they need to take the ideas and process of reform out of speakers and party leaders' hands. Um, anyway, uh, Mark? John, sure. Do you guys have any I'll try to make mine real short. Um, earmarks. It'll be very fascinating to see if the Democrats at least put in some limited ability to move forward on them. And if they do in the House, will the Senate follow? And before, it was the House Republicans who banned them, and it was the Senate that slowly came on board afterwards. Because the Senate always been, I think, more uh, amenable to having earmarks and appropriations bills. Um, that's what I'm going to be watching for, because if you can get that done, all of a sudden this appropriations process might work a little better. Um, I, I'm for your remarks and think that they're overrated, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, we're going to have a whole bunch of senators running for president, so that's going to be a big thing mm -hmm. about this Congress. Mm -hmm. um, most of them, but not necessarily all of them from the Senate minority. Um, and that tends to happen. Not necessarily, but probably all of them. <laughs> it seems like everybody. Oh, okay. Not necessarily all every Democratic senator, senator running for president. Not literally every Democratic um, senator. But we but might also have one or two Republican senators right. conceivably running for president. And the only other thing, you know, I, I, I figured Pelosi probably does survive. I can't imagine someone better, and I think you may have said this earlier, that handling what may turn out to be an impeachment Congress than Nancy Pelosi. Um, and I think she has studied the way Tip O'Neill handled it, and Tip O'Neill handled it, handled it extremely well when he was majority leader um, in 1973-74, and I think that she has been following in that path, and we'll see what they're, whether the evidence demands it, and if the evidence demands it, they may have to move forward, and then we'll see what Republicans do. No love for Speaker Carl Albert, huh? No, my understanding is that that was Tip O'Neill. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, that does it for Congress Two Beers, then. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will be back in another couple weeks. Yeah.